I, I regret that there's a mistake in the scripture reading as printed. Uh, it's not John 20, verse 16, which really is part of the God-breathed scripture, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in the sequence of verses. Verse 17, which I'll read to you. And Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Our general subject is knowing the crystallized significance of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a divine and human organism produced by the mingling of the divine trinity with God's chosen, redeemed, regenerated people. Paul speaks of this in four of his epistles. But there are certain places, and we'll come to them beginning this afternoon, where Paul crystallizes the intrinsic significance of the divine revelation concerning the body of Christ. And our burden is that we would know this crystallized significance according to the scriptures, in the light of life, under the anointing of the Spirit, that our whole being would be involved in this knowing. And as a result, our person, our inward parts, our living will be profoundly affected. I'm thankful that the Lord used as an illustration last night the case of the woman with this flow of blood that could not be stopped. And she aspired only to touch the hem of the Lord's garment. And the hem of the garment is not without significance. The garment is the expression of the Lord's living in all of his virtues. And energy Divine virtue flowed out of him into her. It is not too much to say that if this weekend, if we would only touch the hem of the reality of the body of Christ, something would flow into our being. And she knew she was healed. She didn't have to get more examinations, more medical opinions. She knew. When we touch the Lord in this way, and something flows out of Him, He knows something has flowed out. We know something has flowed in. And we're different. The body of Christ is a reality. When we touch it, we touch something marvelous. We touch the life, the divine nature, 
the all-inclusive Christ, all embodied in his body, flowing out in his ministry. Now this morning we take a step from considering the Lord's own need according to what he has imposed upon himself for the carrying out of his purpose, the Lord's own need for the body, we need to pay much attention to Christ. If we would know the body of Christ, we should really concentrate much on Christ himself on his all-inclusive person, and on the steps of what we call his processes. In the Godhead, Christ is and always will be the only begotten Son. The Godhead by nature is immutable cannot change. This is a divine fact. Nevertheless, God has an economy which is carried out in space and in time with human beings. And in order to fulfill the desire of his heart, he became a human being in the Son and pass through certain experiences, consummating with his resurrection. And all of this is necessary if there is to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ, as this divine organism, is an issue of something. It's a result of something. The old creation sprang into being by divine speaking. That is how the old creation is produced. But the new creation is something in which God himself becomes one with his chosen and redeemed people. And this involves a process. So we, not in, we need to know not only the crystallized significance of the body of Christ, but of Christ's incarnation, his human living, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And all of this is included with much more in Paul's expressed longing that I may know him. That I may know him. So let's uh, turn to this and uh, move patiently but steadily through the outline. Then we'll concentrate much on resurrection. Key point one, the crystallized significance of Christ's incarnation, of God becoming flesh, was that God was brought into man that he might be mingled with man to be a God-man.
We know from Romans 8.3 that God sent forth his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And we know from Galatians 4.5 that God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under law. But in what way did God send forth his son? In what way did the word become flesh? In what way, according to 1 Timothy 3.16, was God manifested in the flesh? For this we need Matthew 1 and we need Luke chapter 1 we see there was a begetting involved. That which was begotten in Mary was out from the Holy Spirit. This is a process of the mingling of divinity with humanity to produce a God-man, a divine human being, Although there is the mingling, there is not the producing of a third nature which is not quite divine and not quite human. Neither is there any loss of identity of the two natures. But here is a man who is truly the God-man. As a man, he was thirsty. He asked a woman for a drink. He slept, albeit through a storm, and all others in the boat were very awake. He was truly a man. And in Luke especially, we touch the loveliness of his humanity. One day there was a funeral. And the only son of a widow had died. He was being carried on this rack called a bier. So the body was visible. And the Lord was moved with compassion for the widow. She had lost her husband. Now her only son had died. What kind of grief is this? He stopped that procession. He spoke and resurrected the dead son and presented him alive to his mother. He did not do this to make a display of miraculous power. This was an act of divine and human compassion. God brought himself into man to be mingled with man as one. We realize that uh, many thoughtful believers, especially those trained in theology, are troubled by our use of the word mingle because... In the 5th century, there was a fellow who used this word 
And he used it in a heretical way in which humanity was virtually swallowed up by divinity. So because Eutyches used the word mingle and he used it wrongly, the theological thought police forbid the use of this word. And we're not here just being difficult. Okay, you don't like it, so for that reason alone, we will use it. We don't have a chip on our shoulder. But it's a very useful word, and it's used in the type of the meal offering in Leviticus 2. If properly understood, it's an an exceptional expression. Here is one person. Divinity and humanity are mingled, yet remain distinct. And a third thing, neither fully divine nor fully human, is produced. Knowing this is central to our knowing the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is a mingling. We will see in Ephesians 4, the triune God is there, and humanity as the human framework is there. And God's intention, God's great will, is to mingle himself with us based upon this principle of incarnation. And we see this mingling in a portion of the New Testament which actually expresses the highest spirituality. Some may think the highest spirituality is to say in the way of the Old Testament prophets, thus saith the Lord, and to do something astounding. But God has a different view. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is engaged in a difficult matter, answering questions about marriage. And at a certain point he says, I have no word from the Lord. But I give my opinion. Now we know from Matthew 16 that opinion can be laced with satanic poison. But in God's full salvation, when the mind is renewed, and we're renewed in the spirit of the mind, and the mind is set on the spirit, and we have the mind of the spirit, the situation is different. So Paul does not pretend to have a revelation. He does not depend, pretend to have a direct speaking. He says, I will tell you what I think. Then he tells us what he thinks. Then when he's done, he says, you know what? I think I have the Spirit of God. This is mingling. This is the God-man. 
The Lord Jesus did not walk around constantly saying, Thus saith the Lord, thus saith Jehovah. He was a man there, fully human, but he was the complete God there. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Here he is in incarnation, the God-man. Aren't you happy that God became a man? Isn't this astounding? I'm sad to say that a professor of mine in Princeton Seminary led a heretical movement in the UK. He came to the UK and entered into this controversy denying the incarnation of God in Christ. But we know the crystallized significance of Christ's birth is that God became flesh in Christ, that is, God himself entered into man to be mingled with man. Now we go on to his human living. And on this, I do have a lot of feeling. The crystallized significance of Christ's human living is that he lived a human life that expressed God. One thing we need to understand about the Lord's human living is that he fulfilled in his living God's intention when he created humankind in his image. He is called the second man and the last Adam. Here he is as an approachable, normal, typical human being. When God became a man, that flesh was not what the females would describe as gorgeous. He wasn't handsome. We know from Isaiah's prophecies, I say this with respect, we, he was rather homely, unattractive. He didn't have a body like the governor of California used to have a few decades ago. He wasn't like this. He didn't come like this, challenging all comers. He wasn't Hercules. He worked as a carpenter. Almost all of his life, the Bible mentions the names of four of his brothers, and let the Pope realize they really were his brothers because Mary really did have a lot of other kids and mentions sisters, plural. So he was one of at least seven in the family growing up in poverty. Do you think he had his own room? He had his own space? He grew up as a root out of dry ground. But he lived in a way 
that actually is indescribable because we have no point of reference. He's a human being. How will you describe his living? Is he merely ethical? Simply moral? Would you say he's mystical? Simply or spiritual? In his living, he was a human being who expressed God in his human living. Everything he said, everything he did expressed God. This is one ground for affirming he was without sin. You know, the New Testament gives us two definitions of sin, both of which may be understood in the light of Genesis 1.26. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Fall short. Hamartano. In other words, the standard of whether or not something is sinful is the glory of God. You measure the Lord's human living by the glory of God, you will find no defect. He expressed God all the time everywhere and with every one. He was a human being mingled with God. He lived a human life, but that human life expressed God. The other definition of sin is in 1 John chapter 3. It might be verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. But we know from Philippians 2 that the Lord Jesus was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here is a man, how splendid, who in no aspect is short of the glory of God, and in whom is not a trace of resistance to God's will. Even toward the very end, in anguish he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. At the end of John 14, he said, that the world may know that I love the Father. Let us arise and go. He was obedient unto death, and that the death of the cross. If we study... John's Gospel. We will see the details of his God-man living. In one place, in chapter 5, he says, The Son can do nothing from himself. He did nothing out from himself as the source. He took the Father as his unique source. He said, my teaching, 
is not mine, but his who sent me. He said, my will, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He said, I have not come in my own name. I have come in the name of my Father. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do not speak my own word. I do not carry out my own work. He is a person who could express God because at every turn he denied the natural life he had as a human being. Therefore, in every word, in every action, he expressed God. In relation to any kind of person, to the disciples, to Peter, to Thomas, to Philip. You just read the Gospels again. Here is a perfect human being. It's too poor to say he's merely ethical. As if there's a category he fits in. Or moral. Or spiritual. He is unique. He is what God wants human beings to be God-expressing persons. As those created in God's image, we have human virtues, but these virtues are void of content. When the divine attributes filled the Lord's human virtues and he lived his human virtues, God was expressed in all of those virtues. So when he illustrated himself as the Samaritan, once again moved with compassion, binding up the wounds, pouring in oil and wine, bearing the wounded one on his own beast, bringing him to the inn, covering all the costs. This is the wonderful God-man. In a sense, I would plead with you concerning this. That there would be something in your being that in the years to come would aspire to know him as the God-man in his human living because the living of the body of Christ is Jesus living again in his mystical body, in a corporate way. Amen. If you read that classic note, uh, early on in Acts chapter 28, after the shipwreck and Paul being there on uh, the island, gathering sticks, I really appreciate and have the sense just to comment again on this. He's gathering sticks there. He's not sitting on a stump giving directions to everybody. He's gathering sticks and this poisonous snake bites him on the hand. 
So now he's got a snake hanging from his hand. And the native people, they're watching. And the first poll they conduct comes out with this judgment. He must be a murderer whom justice is now dealing with because he survived the shipwreck, but now the snake got him. Well, I'll tell you, there are different reactions human beings can have in that situation that are not exactly the God-man living. Okay, let me try to illustrate a few. One is the self-pity reaction. Why does everything happen to me? I just got through a storm. We've been shipwrecked. Now I have a serpent hanging from my hand. That's not the God man. Neither did he panic. He didn't run around on the shore shrieking, a snake, a snake. Neither was he a stoic saying, well, I guess this is it. This is how it all ends. I just am at peace with this snake. And neither was he a miracle worker. He didn't say, I have the power of God, which is great. I will pick up the serpent, twirl it around my head, dash it on the shore and stomp on it to make a display of the vest, the great power of God, which I have. Paul just shook it off. He shook it off. And the natives thought, surely he will die. No swelling, no fainting, no collapse. So a second poll was taken and they concluded he was a god. <laughs> but Paul did not go up to them and say, what was that you said of me at first? What did you call me? No self. I commend that note to you. Jesus living again. And one of his many members. In Galatians 2.20, Paul refers to this. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, here is now a mingling. Christ lives in me and I live. We are not imitating what Jesus would do. That got recycled again recently in the religious culture, at least in North America. We are not imitating him. We may see the body is his corporate reproduction. And he's living in all of us. Consider Stephen. Have you ever pondered Stephen's last utterances in relation to the God-man living of the Lord Jesus? Stephen sees the Lord in glory. The Lord sees Stephen as his reproduction. 
And Stephen prays, Lord, do not hold this against them. Who else prayed like this? Do not hold this against them. Forgive them. And when he was falling asleep, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. And Saul of Tarsus was there, agreeing to the death. But little did he know that shortly this Jesus would appear to him, cause him to touch the me, the corporate Christ, then proceed to make him a pattern of someone who lived the life of a God-man and to record that God-man life in the New Testament as a testimony to us. Don't think that Jesus could live this way because he had no sin. So we are excused because we have sin in the flesh. So that's our excuse. According to Paul's view, he was the greatest sinner. He persecuted the church of God. He would have destroyed it. He agreed with the killing of the saints. And God took this one, self-described as the greatest sinner, had mercy on him, and made him a pattern to all of those who would believe. I appreciate the Lord so much in his human living. Just consider his speaking. In his whole life, he never spoke out from himself. He did not speak his own words. So in John 7, he said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And in faithfulness, I need to say in principle, as one whose journey took him that way for a period of time, the professionals, the religious professionals, are schooled to speak artfully, skillfully, full of self-expression. And awards are given to the best of this. After I had been in the Lord's recovery for a period of time, I realized something in my life with the Lord. And it's something I'm still realizing, even as I'm here with you. I told the Lord, I have to learn how to speak all over again. But here's a person, never spoke from himself, always expressed the Father's thought, the Father's feeling, the Father's glory, who did not seek his own will, 
who was willing to die at 33 and a half because he had finished the work which the Father gave him to do? How I love this God expressing God-man, the Lord Jesus. How can we not but be enthralled by him? What a wonderful person. And God delights in him. He made this explicitly clear in Matthew 3 and again in 17. In the Godhead, this Son in whom he delights remains the only begotten. But in God's economy, God wants this Son to have many brothers who will be conformed to his image. That's Romans 8.29. It's in the Bible. Millions and millions conform to the image of the firstborn Yet the firstborn remains unique because he has the Godhead. And all of these millions eventually will live the same way as the first God-man did. That is the living of the body of Christ. So A says when God passed through human living in the human life, this was God living the God-man life in the flesh, to live out the divine attributes in human virtues. This is the God-man living. You have virtues, so you can be kind. You can be truthful. You can be patient. To a certain extent. The difference between a patient person and an impatient person is about 20 minutes. (laughs) It's not whether you blow, it's when you blow. But consider any one of us at our ethical best, our best behavior. Here we are being kind, being sort of humble, being polite. And it all fails the glory tests because we express only the self. Doesn't that sound crass? The self. (laughs) We're just... You're just so you there. We have to say you're this kind of person. But no God, no Christ, no image of God, no expression of God. If we have God's view of this, the book of Job will begin to make sense to us that God does not want to have on earth just men of integrity who are so strong to maintain their own righteousness. God has to consume all of that in us 
so that Christ may be everything. Have you ever considered the corollary of the statement, Christ is everything? The corollary, remember from math, a proposition is true, so something is necessarily true based on that. The corollary is, we're nothing. In the body of Christ, Christ is everything. Isn't every part of your body you? If someone were to step on your big toe, would you say, kindly remove your foot from that toe? You would say, don't step on me. If we are to know the body of Christ, we need to know Christ in his human living, in his God-man living. His human virtues were filled with the divine attributes. So God was expressed in him all the time. May I give you a little testimony of a learner? This is not faux humility. My wife will tell you I'm a learner, okay? Earlier this year, I need to have an MRI with a certain other component to it. And the nurse said, a lot of men, they can't bear this other thing but that's what was prescribed so the IV is in you're lying down on this sort of a bed then they slide you in this chamber I don't know what claustrophobics do under those conditions your nose is about two inches away from the top And I'd like to testify to you that I was so peaceful and so restful there in the Lord. I told him, this is my life. This is your arrangement for my life today. Today is MRI day. And I'm going to be in this chamber for quite a period of time, about an hour and 15 minutes. And I will be here, Lord, in you and with you loving you, and enjoying you. And, you know, the technician, the nurse, she has seen a lot of these. She does this day after day. She's seen a lot of men, the reactions of a lot of men who are extremely anxious about what is being addressed and what the outcome might be. So she slides me out And then she wanted to express something because she was rather surprised, even amazed. And she said in surprise, you are so nice. I didn't say anything. What I wanted to say was this, not so nice, so God, so God. God in yet another MRI candidate. God in yet another common 
human being. So, what am I learning as a learner? To let Christ live again. He really knows how to live a God-man life. As we go through the stages of human life, we are not exempt from all the human things, all the hardships, stage after stage, until we complete our course. If we know the body and know Christ in relation to the body, we will treasure the intrinsic significance of his God-man living. The Lord Jesus expressed God in his human life. The Lord does not want a group of people. You wonder, are they human? They just seem odd. There's, there's a fundamental lack in their humanity. And some so-called spiritual people can be so severe and inaccessible and unapproachable. God wants us to be Jesusly human. The reproduction of our Lord in his God-man living. So we live our human life in the mingled spirit. Enjoying the Lord, loving Him, abiding in Him, contacting Him. When we fail, return to Him, are cleansed by Him. This is the body of Christ. Jesus living again through all of His members. The Lord Jesus expressed God on earth by becoming a man to live a human life in which he lived out all that God is and his divine attributes to be his human virtues. Now we go on to his crucifixion. The crystallized significance of Christ's crucifixion is that he accomplished an all-inclusive death. We really need Paul's epistles to understand the intrinsic significance of the Lord's crucifixion. Otherwise, we may have a correct but very incomplete understanding. The basic understanding of genuine believers is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we thank the Lord for this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died according to the scriptures. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our whole relationship with the Lord is based on his redemption with the forgiveness of sins. This is a primal 
primary note in the gospel preaching, according to Luke at the end, to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We would never disregard this. But is that all that happened? Hebrews 2.14 indicates the devil was destroyed through the Lord's death. John 12 indicates the world was judged. The ruler of this world was cast out. Ephesians 2 reveals that all the divisive ordinances were terminated there. Colossians 2.15 reveals that Christ triumphed over the principalities and powers in the cross. John 12.24 reveals That the Lord died not only as the Lamb of God, but as a grain of wheat, releasing the life element from within him. His death was all-inclusive. He died as the firstborn of creation. The entire old creation was terminated. Our old man was crucified with him. Consider all of us in this room. We died when the Lord Jesus died on that cross. Our old man was crucified with him. Before we were born in the sight of God, we were crucified. In the conference in Dublin, we considered God's will. One person, one way. And one goal. The one person is the all-inclusive Christ. The one goal is the church as the body of Christ. The one way is the cross. God gives us one person and one way. And Paul makes it very clear the person and the way are inseparable. He said, we preach Christ crucified. God's way to solve all problems is the cross. Human beings have different ways. One way is to negotiate or to talk. Another way is to fight Seems to me Europe is quite familiar with both of these ways. Have you learned God never bargains? God never negotiates. He terminates. He solves all problems by the cross as the instrument of termination. There are a few basic reasons why the body of Christ throughout the centuries has had very little manifestation. And among these reasons is the unwillingness to take God's way. 
No cross. No cross. It's shocking. But for some, the cross was only for redemption. There's no experience of the cross operating in us personally and corporately. But the cross is central. It is God's way to carry out his administration. And the Lord accomplished an all-inclusive death. I don't know if, as members of the body, the Lord has caused you to engage in spiritual warfare. But the enemy knows whether or not you know that he has been destroyed on the cross. He knows. If you realize this, this will be the word of your testimony to him. You come to me, you accuse me, I overcome you by the blood of the Lamb. I will not accept your accusations. I answer you by the blood of the Lamb. And I give you the word of my testimony that Jesus the Nazarene destroyed you on the cross. This is a fact. We are here testifying the fact. So we need to see all these points concerning the Lord's all-inclusive death. On the negative side, His death terminated the old creation, including all persons and things related to the old creation, Satan, sin, world, man's flesh, the law of commandments and ordinances, and everything outside of God. I'm anticipating message five, but I need to point this out now in an initial way and honoring Brother Nee's ministry in particular. The issue of the working of the cross is the body of Christ. We enjoy the Lord. He grows within us. He is formed within us. He makes his home in us. But there is so much about us that is not Christ. As the cross operates to terminate what is not Christ, experientially Christ remains and this Christ causes us to realize the body of Christ and also the cross operates in the life of the body to live the body life is the most blessed experience and the most costly experience. Okay, consider, in your body, is there jealousy among your members? In your body, is there competition? In your body, 
Does one member love to be first? There's no rivalry. In the world, and in religion as part of the world, there are ambition, self-promotion, self-glorification, contentions, rivalry, competition, jealousy, enmity, hatred, all these things. And every human society and every family unit in human society exhibits this. But in the body of Christ, there is none of this. That's why it's so blessed. As one who lived in the body of Christ, Paul could tell us, don't consider only your own things, but the things of others, considering them more excellent than yourselves. This, this is so normal. I'm only an eye. Oh, how I appreciate my ears. Even my flat feet, I appreciate them. They're holding me up. They're still doing their job. I appreciate my nose. Everyone is better than I am. But I can, I can see a little bit. This is not false humility. The body needs all these other members. I say this in the Lord's presence and before your pure conscience. I can go brother after brother as a member of the body. I won't name anyone. Brother after brother and say in the Lord, you are more excellent than I. You are more excellent than I. The Lord sent you to Russia. The Lord sent me to Russia. Nothing would happen in Russia. I come along Years later, maybe to mend a little bit. What a relief, my brothers and sisters. I, I need to tell you again, to the Lord's glory, my impression when I first saw Brother Lee speak. It was early in the year in 1967 in Eldon Hall, on the Lord's Day, he was standing there speaking. And I was listening and watching. And I was very unlearned in the things of, of the divine life. But two words kept going through me. No self. No self. I had never seen such a thing. And then spontaneously, there was a deep respect for the way that he had taken and the experiences that he had had, which brought him to this point of no self. Because in my background, the self was strongest among the pulpiteers. 
of whom I was one until the Lord applied his one way to my being and is still doing so. And then there was a prayer. Lord, I'd like to take the same way. Whatever that way is, I'd like to take that way. In the body of Christ, there is no self. We know that the three of the triune Godhead are opposed by negative factors. The world is versus the Father. The devil is versus the Son. The flesh is versus the Spirit. In actuality, the self expresses Satan. So the self is antichrist. So the choice will always be, as the Lord explicitly told us, the self or the Lord. In the body of Christ, there is no self. There is only Christ in all the members. You are here as a redeemed person being transformed. You will have your identity for eternity. But the self, which has its origin in the element of Satan injected into us, is gone. The decision that all Christians will face regarding the body eventually is this. Either the self or the body. You cannot have both. In the church, outwardly, as an assembly, you can be in the self. You can be in the self this morning. No one will cast you out of the meeting we don't have the self-patrol. We don't have a, have a self-o-meter at the door trying to get a read on it. But in the body, there's this immune system. And there's only Christ there. Well, we need Christ to increase. And we need the application of the Lord's death by the Spirit to our being, so all the antichrist and anti-body of Christ elements are dealt with. Then we live, I'll tell you, the most restful life. We're not in rivalry with anyone. We don't compare ourselves with others. We don't measure ourselves with others. We're not fearful of others' progress. All these are foreign. And instead, there's this harmony, this peace, this mutuality, this honoring of one another, this subjection to one another. The world has yet to see it. Not to read yet another book about it, to see it. Europe 
will see this before the end of the age. Christ's death completely removed and thoroughly terminated all defilement and corruption in the universe brought in through Satan's rebellion and Adam's fall. On the positive side, Christ's death released the divine life in him as a basic factor of the new creation. When Christ as a grain of wheat fell into the ground and died, the life element within him became intensely alive to release the divine life that was concealed in him and to impart it into the many grains. This is the life-releasing aspect of Christ's death. If there were only the negative aspect, all the problems would be solved, but there would be no body of Christ because the life, which is the body, would be limited to the Lord himself. The life would be in him alone, but the life would not be in anyone else. But the one grain did not remain alone. Have you ever thanked the Lord for not remaining alone as the one grain? For not loving himself, not preserving his soul life, but falling into the ground and dying for the breaking of the shell of his humanity to release the divine element that was within him so that in his resurrection, this released life element could be dispensed into us. And I'd like to take the time to read what follows John 12, 24, because this is another aspect of the body life. And why we really need to know the Lord in all these aspects and experience him in all these aspects. This is what he says in verse 25. He who loves his soul life loses it. And he who hates his soul life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Follow him where? Now you are in Spain. You are in Greece. You are in Germany serving the Lord. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. You are now one of the many grains. To serve him is to follow him into the ground and to experience not his redeeming death, only he can go through that, to experience him in his life-releasing death. And where I am, there also my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In 2 Corinthians 4, 10-12, we see Paul living this way, he says in verse 12, death operates in us and life in you.
Okay, this is the body. This is the essence of the New Testament ministry. This ministry is not a group of gifted brothers who are eloquent and knowledgeable and can discourse on doctrines for people who are interested. The ministry is based on John 12, 24 through 26. It is being one with the Lord in his life-releasing death. To change the metaphor, it is to be identified with him as the smitten rock whence the living waters flow. There's a cross operating in the body. On the one hand, it's operating to solve all problems. Two sisters cannot get along. They won't greet each other. They sit on different sides of the marquee. What's a marquee anyway? We're in one and I don't know what it is. So tell me after the message. What will solve the problem? Eventually you've got Euodia and Syntyche. Then you got a text message from Paul saying, Brother Paul... Help them to be of one mind in the Lord. Well, only the cross can solve that problem. But the cross also needs to operate for the release of life. What do you think was happening in Anway province from 1952 to 1972 in Brother Watchman Nee? 20 years, the grain of wheat fell into the ground and died to release life. He probably his whole life had no idea how his books were spreading, the impact of his ministry, the normal Christian life, yet today is nourishing So many seeking ones. This is the living in the body. He doesn't consider himself a martyr, a hero. And what does he say at the end? Every time I recall this, it moves me deeply. His last communication to a relative was... I have maintained my joy. What did he have to enjoy? Gourmet food? Brooks Brothers clothes? Tailored shirts? Nice shoes? Comfortable bed? Nothing. Nothing. But Christ and the body of Christ. I say he wasn't a hero because he knew he was a member and he lived by the life that flowed to him from the body and he supplied the body that the life flowed out from within him through his experiences. He lived in this deep mutuality. I I don't know how you feel. We're We're nearly done, 10 or 12 minutes. To me, all these points 
They're living. They're living. They're aspects of Christ himself and his processes. And what Christ is to the members of his body. Now, the crystallized significance of Christ's resurrection is threefold. We need to make it very clear because we have a certain emphasis about which we make no apology. But we want to make it very clear that we absolutely believe all the truths and all the basic truths in the scriptures concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Luke 24, the Lord suddenly appeared. The disciples were afraid. They thought they were seeing a spirit, meaning a specter, a phantom, or a ghost. And the Lord said, it is I, myself, touch me and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Flesh and bones. No blood. Flesh and bones. Then, you know, these disciples, these are men. They need empirical data. They need evidence. They need proof. They need something demonstrable. So he was given a piece of broiled fish. And he ate it. Now, please don't send me an email asking me, how did he digest the broiled fish? We're not told. I don't know. Maybe we'll eat broiled fish together in the kingdom and we'll find out. I don't know. We absolutely believe that the Lord has a resurrected body of flesh and bones. We believe he ascended to the heavens with his glorified, physical, yet pneumatized body. He will return and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. This is Luke 24 and other scriptures. We absolutely believe it. But let me look at this from another way with you. Romans chapter 8. Christ is in you. 2 Corinthians 13. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3.16. Christ is making his home in your hearts. Do we not believe these? Do you not believe that Jesus Christ is in you? It's what it says. It doesn't say he's in you through the spirit. That's theology talk. What does that mean anyway? But that's not what it says. It says Jesus Christ is in you. Even he's making his home in our hearts. This morning... Does anyone here have the sense that a being with flesh and bones is living inside of you? I've never had this feeling. Why should we be biased in reading the New Testament? 
why would we not affirm everything it says? Our resurrected Lord has a body of flesh and bones. With such a body, he's in the heavens, he's in glory. He will come visibly. He will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign there. Yet we're told emphatically that he's in us. How can that be? Well, he can be in us because the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The Lord is the spirit. And as the spirit, which is called the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus, and the spirit of Jesus Christ, he can be in us. This is possible because he resurrected. In John 14, he is referring to himself, the spirit of reality is with you. He will be in you. The one who is with you in incarnation will be in you in resurrection. Somehow, economically, not essentially in the Godhead, economically, in the Lord's operation, the resurrected Christ and the Spirit are so one that they function as one. And because our resurrected Lord is the Spirit, yet has a body of flesh and bones, we can breathe him. He breathed on his disciples, said, receive the spirit, and he is in us. Why would we now retreat into symbolism and say that's what it says, but that's what it means. It's a metaphor. Well, why don't you symbolize away other passages? If someone would say, how do you reconcile? I have no idea. I'm not aware of any divine commandment for me to reconcile every proposition in the New Testament. Are you aware of such a one? And true geniuses, those who have systematized minds, I read a number of their systematic theologies, and I'm not convinced that they got everything in there. It seems... Something is distorted, something is minimized for the sake of a system. But God is asystematic. We don't believe contradictions. But we believe sincerely what the scriptures say. I'd like to testify and your spirit will verify. Right in the center of this meeting... Right now, the resurrected Christ is here. Amen. He said, where two or three are gathered together into my name, there am I. Amen. I say this respectfully, directly to the Lord. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. So good to contact you again. Amen. You know we love you. Amen. We honor you in our midst. Maybe the Lord will recall this. He will say, 
That's right. That October Saturday in that building where you were meeting and you greeted me, I was there. Because he's resurrected, the body will now come forth as we finish our reading. The human nature of Christ was designated to be the Son of God, and thus Christ became the firstborn Son of God. That's Romans 8.29. That's Hebrews 1.6, when he brings again the firstborn into the world. The only begotten Son in the Godhead cannot have brothers, does not have brothers, but in God's economy, with respect to Christ's humanity, he does have brothers. I'd like to pose this question. The Gospel of John is the Gospel of the God-Savior. In 1.18, we're told the only begotten Son declares God. John 3.16, God gave his only begotten Son. But in John 20, verse 17, this very son said, go to my brothers. Have you ever considered these verses? How can he have brothers? He's the only begotten son. We interpret scripture with scripture. Other scriptures indicate, like Acts 13, 33, when Christ was resurrected, that was a birth as far as his humanity was concerned to fulfill the prophetic utterance in Psalm 2, this day I have begotten you. And he was born to be the firstborn son and we were regenerated with him to be the many sons of God. That's why he told this seeking sister. It's really good to be a seeking sister. Here's a little aside. The sisters find the tomb empty. They report to the brothers. The empirical brothers immediately run to the tomb. They go inside, examine the data. Okay, no body is here. Grave clothes are here. The face napkin is folded up. Ergo, therefore, we conclude the fact he is raised from the dead. We believe that he is raised from the dead. It's very good. But the sister is a blessed extremist. She is not comforted by empty tombs, grave clothes, and face napkins. She's there. She's still crying. The Lord asks, why are you crying? She said, they have taken away my Lord. Will you show me where they have laid him so that I will come and take him away? Altogether unreasonable. She wants the person and the person she gets. And when the Lord says her name, she realizes there's only one person who can speak like this to me. She wanted to cling to him. She said, he said, no. I need to ascend to the Father. The freshness of my resurrection is to him. 
Go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. We, according to 1 Peter 1.3, were generated when Christ was resurrected. And Christ, as the last Adam, became the life-giving spirit. Now, the last section puts this together and points us to the body of Christ. God's firstborn son and his many sons constitute a universal corporate new man with the firstborn son as the head and the many sons as the body. What a glorious revelation. In his Godhead, Christ the Son was the head. But in his humanity, he had to become the head in ascension, following resurrection. Now he is the head of the body, and he in us is all the members of the body. The head is the firstborn son. The members of the body are the many sons. The head and the body, the body with the members, equals the firstborn son and the many sons, all of whom were produced in resurrection. Corporately, the many sons of God are the church. Organically, they are the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church, the house of God, the kingdom of God, and the bride, the counterpart of Christ. In each aspect, the church takes the body of Christ as its organic factor. That's why the body is crucial. If there is to be a bride, we must have the body. If there is to be the kingdom, there must be the body. Without the body of Christ as its organic factor, the church is lifeless and is a mere human organization. The body of Christ is a constitution of the triune God and his redeemed that the triune God may be constituted with his redeemed as one entity. The body of Christ is the issue of the crystallized significance of Christ's incarnation, human living, crucifixion, and resurrection. If we only know these four steps... Outwardly, we will not see the connection with the body of Christ. But if we see mingling and incarnation, if we see the God-man living in the Lord's human living to express God, if we experience the full significance of the cross, solving problems and releasing life, and if we know the Lord and the power of his resurrection, we will realize Yes, certainly, he was raised physically from the dead as the proof of our justification, but that's not all that happened. He became the life-giving spirit, he became the firstborn son of God, and we were regenerated to be his many brothers. The issue of this is the body of Christ, an organic constitution wherein the triune God is mingled with his redeemed people to be one entity. That is the crystallized significance of the body of Christ. 
And that is what we will begin to consider directly this afternoon. So I hope once again we have sufficient time that brothers and sisters alike would follow the leading of the Spirit within them to share something. Wherever you're sitting, let the Lord live in you. Let's be this body of Christ right here, right now. Let the Lord live in you and speak through you for our mutual building up. Amen.